Hi, this is Bron Burton and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. There is that music, that wonderful music that marks the morning. It marks Sunday morning at 9am on a beautiful day. You're on 3RRR. This is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxshaw. I'm Cade Mills. And I'm Bron Burton. That was seamless, team. (laughs) (laughs) What listeners don't know is the three of us are in completely different locations. Well done, everybody. Hey, how are you both? I'll let Bron go first. She's sitting at home, I believe. Yeah, uh, this is a trip. <laughs> I'm, bro- I'm broadcasting from my dining room table, so um, yeah. No, look, okay, it's good. What a different, uh, a different world we're in now. So no, it's good. Beautiful day. Um, Going to get out there and get some sunshine um, within the limits of what we're able to do, of course. But yeah, I'm good. How are you guys? Look, to be honest, I'm struggling with the remembering a mask thing and I'm just wondering how long it's going to take until we become so used to them that people end up going for a swim with them still on, they jump in for a dive and they've still got them because that happens. Sunglasses, I've seen people out in the water surfing with sunglasses on that didn't realise they've got them and I have a feeling masks are going to head that way soon but I'm just not there yet. <laughs> I, um, I don't know, I, yeah, I, I, I think I've just stuffed one in my pocket. And I filled the car up with them, like every nook and cranny. So, because I know I'm going to be like that, Kate. I know I'm going to forget that. <laughs> That's good organisation, <laughs> Anthony. I'm not there yet. Hopefully, everyone else is doing all right with it too. Um, we've got a, a, a jam-packed show, but before we get into it, we have to thank uh, his lordship, um, Esquire, Tim Tim Thorpe Esquire, OBE, a, a CBE. Uh, Your Royal Highness. His Royal Highness again, <laughs> masterful. Masterful performance this morning. It just—it was just the how Tim manages to weave those tracks together. I, I do like he put a Neil Young song on and said it's not really his best, but it just fit in with a the theme. Exactly. <laughs> so that's how he does it. I, I know, and and even though he doesn't always explain there is a theme, there's just this underlying theme that's going on there. What do you reckon, Bron? I just think he's amazing. I know I say this every week, but anyway. He is, and to be able to pull off that quality of broadcasting uh, week after week after week, he just, what's the line from the castle? It just keeps coming up night after night after night, and um, <laughs> that's, it. that's our team. And, um, you know, six hours of broadcasting every weekend and to still finish so strong every single Sunday, is, you know, leads, leads, leads into our hour is amazing. Oh, we love him. He's a national treasure, is Tim. He's I think we need a stamp. Maybe we we'll do that. He's got the gong. Let's get him a stamp. <laughs> anyway, we've got a huge show. Um, uh, Brett will be joining us. Our cabin field, a uh, cabin field, Brett Ditchfield, our cabin boy diary with the cabin boy diaries. Brett's been watching the ABC um, East Australian Current doco. Have you guys seen that? Everyone except for me's watched oh, it, I believe. Man, you've got it. Uh, no, everyone except for you and me, Kate. Oh, there you go. <laughs> we're together on this. It is. It's on my IG list. I got seriously, Bron. It's great. It's really good. Completely wonderful nerding out. I mean, you know, it's like built for people like us. Um, anyway, he's been watching it like I have, and um, it's got him inspired about flows and currents and boats and how they move. So he's going to he's going to do that. And then, um, what are we doing, Bron? 
We're catching up with Dallas De Silva uh, from the Victorian Fisheries Authority. So we last caught up with Dallas back in May uh, when the spider crab aggregations were going gangbusters. Um, and we were talking to him about, you know, the issues arising. Things got really heated. Uh, and uh, I think we're all familiar with what happened there. So it's been two months since we caught up with Dallas. We did say we'd catch up with him down the track. And uh, this week he and his team have actually been out on the water, lucky them, um, and uh, attaching some satellite tags to some spider crabs in the middle of Port Phillip Bay. So we're going to talk to Dallas about the work that they've been doing. And also, um, the last time we had him on, we were talking about um, some citizen science programs that he was looking at getting going. So I don't know whether they've been able to... Uh, get off the ground with with oh, where yeah, we're at course. with um with COVID, but anyway, we'll talk to Dallas about all that. And then um, the bar court tonight, uh, Alan Young is a is a coastal kind of expert, a multifaceted coastal expert um, in policy and um, activity planning, all that kind of stuff, who's um, in New South Wales, used to be in the Department of Premiers up there a while ago. And he, um, he we're going to talk to him in the, in the this month's edition of Coastal Adaptations about, you know, options for coastal adaptation, given that there are houses in New South Wales falling into the ocean after the storms the other week. Yeah, is he going to bring up that word managed retreat, which seems oh, to be like something and that... more, you wait. Yeah, we just, people can't <laughs> get their head around this idea of managed retreat we're so good at taking things that yep. we're not very good at giving them back when it comes to the natural world oh, you are so spot on and i i've got to say that today is a special day in our house 18 years ago today my first born was born. oh wow i know can you believe it so is this a shout out for his birthday yeah, yeah he's not up of course he's, he's, he's 18 you know <laughs> serious he said are you doing a show on sunday dad and i said yeah yeah and he said what time's it finished and i said do you um i, I just i don't want to put this out but i've been doing it the whole time you've been alive have you never realized <laughs> <laughs> and he laughed and he said oh oh is it nine and i went oh, keep going he said is it 11 i went ah, it finishes at 10 mate um anyway <laughs> he said oh it's fine i won't be up till you get home <laughs> Anyway, that's so, so funny. Happy I birthday, remember, Oscar. Happy birth- Sorry, you go ahead. <laughs> happy birthday, Oscar. Happy birthday, Oscar. <laughs> I remember when he was born. I'm, <laughs> I'm now entering that stage of life where, you know, 18 years ago, it feels like yesterday. That's incredible. I know, doesn't what? it? I know. Yeah. Don't, don't tell anybody. Hey, and I've got to say another milestone in our extended family. My dad turned 89 on Friday. Wow. So happy birthday, Dad. We've had a bit of a festival um, the last couple of days, at least by Zoom. Um, you know. Yeah, well, that's the way it's done these days, isn't it? Absolutely. Be hey, now, you've got the side. weather, Kate. I have got the weather. And look, today's absolutely gorgeous out there. It's going to be a top of 17. We've got some northerly, turning sort of northwest, westerly winds. Um, going to pick up a little bit, but they should be fine. The swell's also a couple of foot and a whole lot of fun. So if you do have access to the water, I'd get out there and make the most of it. Um, you know, find your spot and get amongst it. Basically, for the rest of the week, we've got a couple of nice days and then it's going to start getting windy around Tuesday, Wednesday. It's actually going to start getting windy and wet. So, we're going to, wind's turning to southwest. It's going to get a bit ugly for a few days. Um, and basically, August is the month that I wish would just kind of be swallowed up as far as the weather's concerned. It's one that I'm always happy to get to the end of because September seems to be the announcement of spring. August is just that blur f- phase and I'm getting there at the moment. But the rest of the week we've got lows of 5 and tops of 12 and you know it's going to rain and the sun's going to come out and it's probably going to be grey and a bit miserable. For the divers, <laughs> it is a high tide at 10.20 today with a low tide at 4.20. So again, if you've got access to the water and you can do that, get out there and get amongst it. Conditions are gorgeous today. Don't worry about the rest of the week.
Yeah, good idea. It's a very civilised time for a high tide, Cade. It is. Look, I try and plan these things for people given what we're all going through. <laughs> Not that we can probably get there, but um, the um, hey, we got it. We actually have a giveaway um, today, and I'm not gonna. It's a it's a six month pass for free streaming on DocPlay, which is DocPlay.com. I'm not going to do it now, so don't call. And when we do it, we're not actually calling. We're doing it a different way. So anyway, we've got a giveaway. So I just want to flag that. It's really cool. It's um it's the basically if you don't know about DocPlay, it's the most Australia's most comprehensive curated streaming service for doco films and series. It's got history, politics, art, sport, music, social stuff. Very cool. Anyway, I'll do that later in the show. So just listen out for that one. Hey, Bron, you got any news? I do. I've got a couple of bits. Um, I'll kick off with a, a sad piece of news. This is a, a valet for Bob Baird, who passed away during the week. So Bob mm. was one of the very first advocates for hooded plover conservation. Um, he initiated efforts on Phillip Island a very long time ago and is uh, going to be very sadly missed. This was posted by the Phillip Island Conservation Society. So, um, so valet, uh, Bob, and thank mm. you for all the amazing work that you did. He was a bird watcher, an artist, environmental warrior and past highly respected member of the Phillip Island Nature Parks Board. Board. So I uh, thought we'd kick oh. off that one and um, and just say thank you what for an amazing a lifetime con- of work. Yeah, what an amazing contribution Bob made over mm. the years. Um, I've got a more lighthearted one to follow with. Um, you were mentioning stamps earlier, Anth, and, and um, Australia Post has put out a couple of stamps which are super cool. One is uh, a sunfish. We've been talking a bit about sunfish. Last week, Cade, we were talking about sunfish. We had um, some correspondence from one of our listeners, uh, Rob, who had spotted one uh, washed up on the beach at Malacuta. And Kate, um, you and I were chatting during the week. There's been another one washed up somewhere. Found down at Kennet River. So, huh. um, yeah. And the, the awesome thing is these things are being cited. And I think within a couple of hours, the museum are getting people out there to collect genetic spec samples oh, wow. for analysis because we don't know much about them. So anyone that gets cited and anyone that washes up is potential treasure trove of information. And it's great that social media is sort of allowing people to still collect even during these times. It's great. Mm. So there's are two stamps that have been put out by Australia Post. There's the bumphead sunfish. In fact, both of these fish uh, can be found around Norfolk Island. So it's a Norfolk Island special. The bumphead sunfish that can grow up to 3.3 metres in diameter and the oarfish, which can grow up to 11 metres long, making it the world's longest bony fish species. And that's the one that I reckon the oarfish that must have inspired the sea serpents and the sea dragon stories because they fan ink them. They look a bit like that if you look front on and they come out of the water. They do. I've heard that a few times as well. I'm with you, Anne. Very cool. Yeah. I didn't know they got them around Norfolk Island. That's very cool. No, I didn't either. Um, any, Australia any... Post did, did. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a couple of posties somewhere. They go, oh, I reckon we should do those all fish around Norfolk <laughs> Cade, you got some news? I, look, I've just got a quick one I'm going to go with. Micro mollusks. We have our very own bay keeper who comes in and does his shell surveys. But how small do you think a micro mollusk is, Anth? Just throwing it out to you. Oh, I know. Millimetre. Basically, grain of sand. That's what they are. So there's been some work just recently done in the Kimberley where they found 26 new species just by having a look, basically. (laughs) Um, And thousands more were surveyed. And I love a good comparison, and this one's pretty special. In half a cup of sand, there are more micromolic species species than there are coral species in the Kimberley. Oh, no. Yeah, so that's a lot. That's a lot of work too. Let's just re... Let's play that again. In half a cup of sand, sand there's more micromollus species yeah. than there are coral species off the Kimberley coast. Oh, 
Now that's biodiversity. And that's one of the questions or the issues that's been raised because we do these diversity indices, but things like that are so often overlooked. So it's basically Pandora's box, which is what we do in science is we ask one question and leave with a million more to follow. But yeah, so that's some amazing work coming out of the Kimberley. And so that's only just recently been announced. So there'll be more. So we should try and follow up on that one. I'm really curious to know more. Indeedy do. We are on through Triple R. You're on Radio Marinara. It is uh, 16 minutes past the hour of 17 minutes past the hour of 9 o'clock and we uh, welcome everyone back and also bringing in uh, our cabin boy. How are you going this morning, Brett? Good morning. I'm allowed up from the cabin onto the deck, so morning too. <laughs> Getting some sun. <laughs> I love it, Dale. complexion of mine, I know. Hey, now while you're up here, make sure you have a bit of lemon or lime yeah, for that scurvy, okay? I'll be keeping that at bay, don't you worry. So, yeah, plenty of coffee too. Um, I've, uh, I think I've mastered the extraction, so I'm working on my foam art now. So Ooh. that's keeping me busy. Ooh. Oh, it sounds very efficient. I think it's a little bit more Picasso, though, rather than... <laughs> so I did do a Rembrandt the other day, and I've got no no idea how I actually did that. So. <laughs> uh, loving it, loving it. Hey, now, you've been um, in ISO, you've been um, thinking about boats and obviously thinking about currents, watching the East Australian Current doco, which we all, which at least half of us have. Um, tell us, like, what... Tell us about boats and currents and flows. Well... Because it's on, you can still catch it on iViews, okay? You, you've still got, you know, you've still got a bit of time to catch it. Um, Thanks, Brett. It's, it's, <laughs> it's slap on the wrist. He hasn't yeah. seen it. <laughs> well, it's kind of rather a large current. It's kind of like our Australia's Gulf Stream, but people are probably more familiar with the Gulf Stream than the East Australian current, you know? So it's a good doco. Um, Disney movie Finding Nemo kind of bring it to that because that's, Kind of stars in it, the East Australian Current too. I'm, I'm not. I haven't seen that movie. But oh come on! I, I have. What? I've got yeah. that. My kids are a little bit older, so yeah. So oh. I haven't seen it. But oh, do people yeah, go to yeah. that movie with their kids? Yeah. Oh, whoops! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you thought it was a doco, didn't you? Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. So that's all. The doco is all about the, the marine life and all that. But it does influence boating because uh, there is always a, a thing to say. Easier to come down the east coast than go up the east coast, mainly because that current. I don't know how much that plays uh, a part of. And the uh, the Hobart fleet use it too. You'll often see the uh, fleet split. They might stay in to get some wind, but a lot of them will head out to get into that east Australian current. And um, you may ask, how would you know you're in a current in your, when you're in the middle of a featureless ocean? But what they do <laughs> is they take it. Uh, they measure the um, ocean temperature. So if you're not in it quite cold if you're in it it's slightly warmer a couple of degrees warmer so then you know you're in the actual east australian current because of the warmth and so does it give you a you know if you're out there on on a yacht and you're in it does it give you a big kind of push a lot well we're talking about you know million dollar worth of uh, yachts and kind of high stakes so if they can get you know another couple of two or three knots out of it oh wow yeah, going to stand them in good stead. Oh, that would be. So, I mean, over a thousand kilometres, an extra knot is going to get you quite significantly ahead of the other one that's not using it. That's true, because and it does go all the way down to Tassie, so yeah. and into the Tasman Sea. So if you can ride that down, yeah, that's going to be a big advantage for you, really. And is this a is this a kind of a you know we know the way that sailors use the wind, 
you know, and really understand the way the wind moves. Are there sailors who specialise in using the currents? Well, that's called seamanship, really. <laughs> think about it. I love it. Think about it. Sailors have been using tide, wind, currents for thousands of years. Before you know, before we had engines, you had to really know your stuff, or you know, you're going to get swept out to sea or swept onto some rocks because of tidal current and that. So. Yeah, if you if you know your stuff, if you're an old sea salt, you'll be using every advantage you've got. So, and kind of, we probably don't come across ocean currents, but tidal flow is a you know you need to know your tidal flow, especially to get out through Port Phillip Head. It's uh, you don't know your stuff there with the tides. You're going to be uh, washed up on uh, to a rocky shore for sure. So, no, that didn't <laughs> that was an odd statement for sure for sure. <laughs> I know, it just sounded a bit Irish. Were you um, so? If you if you're heading out of um, Portfil Heads, like what is yep. the? I mean, I know it from a diving perspective, you know, about when you want to be where. Um, yeah. But like, what what are the key things you want to worry about um, from the yacht? Well, you're looking for slack water there, so um, because that rips through because it's such a well relatively narrow entrance compared to the bay, so they get like a tidal stream of four or five knots through there. So if you're a, like a, a, a yacht and you're only doing three or four, you're going to get swept out, you know, swept where you don't want to. So you're heading looking for slack water, which is three hours before and after high water. So it takes a long time for that water to get in and out of Port Phillip Bay. So rule of thumb, if it's um, high or low water at Williamstown, it's slack water at the heads. And that's, it's interesting because, Bron, I'm thinking, you know, as I'm listening to, to this, I'm thinking this is the same as, as diving. This is exactly what we need to worry about. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Hey, Brad, mm. I had a quick question. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the extent of the current. Does it have um, any sort of impact on, you know, the big yachting events like the Sydney to Hobart? So we're talking about the difference of one knot. Would that have any sort of impact, like the, the, the actual path of the current on, on races like that? Oh, yeah, for sure. As I said, they, they, they try and get into that uh, current and uh, ride it all the way down the coast. So for sure, they're, they're yeah, right. looking to get into that just for that little advantage. So in terms of timing, is, is that the sort of thing that the yachts are looking out for? So like the, the yachts that tend to be more successful in those events, are they the ones that are really skilled at being able to work out when to sort of come into that current and um, not necessarily when to come out of it, but how to actually ride it? Well, it's kind of tactics, like whether you look for the wind, the stronger wind, or whether you head offshore to try and find that current. There's so many things, you know, it's, yeah, it's not just one yeah. thing that will win it, you know, Sydney to Hobart. There's so many, and it's like a game of chess. You know, you think someone's won, and then suddenly someone's come from somewhere else because of a wind change <laughs> or this or that. Yeah. But, but another big tidal stream is Banks Strait in uh, Bass Strait, the um, tip of um, southeast Tassie and Clark Island. Yeah. Because um, you've got to really time that too because the current rips through there. So if, if you're a yacht that's doing, you know, five knots and you've got a four or five knot current, if you're going against it, you're not going anywhere. But if you time it right and you've got that four or five uh, knot current behind you, oh, oh, you're doing, you know, a good nine knots and a uh, couple of Hail Marys to Poseidon and you're on your way there. <laughs> I, love, I love the mix of religious metaphors yeah. there. I'm not sure the Poseidon takes Hail Marys, but, you know. <laughs> I might have got that wrong. <laughs> I don't know who to... The Catholic Church or the Greek mythology, I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah, look, it does play a big part, and the... I kind of equate it... 
to um, if you're in a speedboat and a motorboat, it doesn't really change too mm. much. Although I'm sure those big shipping companies look for currents to uh, help them through with their, yeah. you know, to keep the cost down. Yeah. But it's kind of like riding a bike or driving a car. You know, you're on a hill when you're on a bike, and uh, you've got no idea you're on the hill when you're in the car. And that's the same as sailing and motorboating, really. That's nice fantastic. That's what a great. fantastic segue too. Good yeah. way to, to end it. Um, hey, hey, thank you very much, Brett. Now it's it's sorry, but you've had your your moment in the sun. So if you want to head yeah, back yeah. down to the cabin, well, uh, I am. Um, we're going to whip up some <laughs> banana bread, and I've got a little thing for life here to, to keep in mind: the badder the banana, the better the bread. Oh, I totally agree. <laughs> I, my kids are always going, for God's sake, Dad, you can't use them. We go, no, no, they're completely rotten. That's what you need. There shouldn't be bananas on your boat, cabin boy. No, that's what I was thinking. Is it like, is it bad luck to even mention that word? Oh, God. Isn't that like oh, the ultimate B word? Oh, I might have to do a one on superstition on boats because oh, it's yes, interesting please. where they come from too, some of those superstitions. Yes, please. All right, well, that'll be... You head back down to your cabin, pal. And then um, <laughs> we'll invite you up next time to talk about superstition. We, as oh, long as you okay, don't bring that's... a banana and you can point out where the albatross is in the right way. <laughs> <laughs> Not a problem. Closing the hatch now. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's about time they, they get above their station, those cabin boys, don't they? <laughs> Welcome back to Cade and Bron. And I'm just going to quickly say before the, that little uh, giveaway and the, uh, and the announcements, was Briggsy and Gurumul and uh, who else? Dwayne Everett Smith with the children came back off Archie Roach's 25th anniversary Charcoal Lane tribute. You're on Radio Marinara. Over to you, Bron. Thanks, Anne. Yes, where it is 9.33, 27 minutes to 10 o'clock. Now, back at the end of May, when spider crab aggregations were starting to peak, we caught up with Dallas De Silva, Director of Victorian, uh, sorry, the Fisheries Management Policy, Science and Licensing at the Victorian Fisheries Authority. We talked to Dallas about the issues arising and, and the authority's plans to learn more about the spider crabs over the coming year. So it's now been two months since we last caught up with Dallas, and this week he and his team have been out locating crabs around Port Phillip Bay and setting them up with some fancy headwear to get a better understanding of where they go and what they do throughout the year. To find out more, it's with great pleasure we welcome back to Triple R, Dallas De Silva. Good morning, Dallas. Good morning, Brian. Thanks for having us. Oh, great to have you there. We're, we're, there are four of us now in different locations. <laughs> I know, I'm loving this. this. Broadcast. <laughs> so, yeah, it's awesome. Now, when we last caught up with you, things were pretty heated. Have they settled down since then? Yeah, we've been out uh, last week off Ryan Blegary and you know, been tagging uh, 15 of these spider crabs, uh, both male and female. Uh, and we had PT out there diving alongside us uh, in using uh, you know, red boats. Uh, Luke English gave us a bit of a hand as well. So it was a really good opportunity to work with the dive sector and, uh, and have our scientists out there as well tagging these crabs. So 15 is amazing because when we last caught up, you were talking about maybe doing five, so being able to even... How hard is it to find the crabs once they disappear? Because, you know, obviously at the time that they aggregate, uh, it, it's hard to miss them, really. You pretty much trip over them if you're underwater. How, how yeah, hard is it to right. find them once they all disappear? Absolutely, Brian. It, it did take a little bit of work to, to locate the, the crabs again because they have started to, to you know disperse. And uh, they're in about 13 metres of water as well. So... Um, in a, in a bit more deeper water and, um, you know, we had some divers down looking for them and after about an hour or so we found a few. Um, 
Yeah, we got uh, 15 crabs, uh, male and female, uh, different sizes. So um, and some big crabs down to some smaller crabs. And, uh, yeah, the tags were, were specially attached. It's a, what we call a satellite pop-up tag. And each, uh, each tag costs about two to $3,000, so they're not cheap. Um, oh, but we wow. think the crabs are worth it and, you know, it's, uh, yeah, supports this, uh, this great fishery and also an opportunity, as you said, to find out a bit more about them. Is it a um, pretty nerve-wracking experience actually attaching uh, a piece of machinery that costs, you know, $2,000 to a crab and then kind of sending it on its way? That's what I was thinking, God. I was thinking that. I was thinking, gosh, they're, they're crabs. They're not like seals. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, yeah, Corey Green, our, our lead scientist on this from Queenscliff, did a great job. And, you know, we went through all the uh, approvals, animal welfare approvals and so on, animal ethics, etc. and... Uh, yeah, they were specially designed and they're, they're what we call, you know, um, mutually buoyant. So they don't hold the crab back at all. They just sort of um, sit there in the water column and, uh, yeah, the crabs really don't feel it at all and they're attached by a, a tiny little harness. Now, you um, you sent me a photo of the crabs with the tags on their heads and we'll put that on our Facebook page because it really is pretty spectacular. It was actually nothing like I was expecting. I, I thought it would maybe be, you know, maybe a, a, a centimetre or two in height, not that I know anything about satellite tagging um, of underwater animals, but um, it's really quite, it's very impressive. Can you describe it sort of as a, as a visual for people who are listening? Yeah, they're, they're, well, yeah, the tags are probably, you know, as big as your... your um sort of middle figure, they're, they're, yeah, they're not um, the little tags that some people might think of that we use commonly on fish. Uh, they're very high tech and you know, that's why they do cost a bit of money. Um, and they're especially designed to capture things like water current uh, flow. Um, and what we've done with these, these type of tags, they're specially programmed. One of those um, tags will detach and pop up to the surface every week for the next 15 weeks on you know, each of the crabs. So. Over the next 15 weeks, we're going to capture some really good data about where these crabs have gone, and uh, that'll be happening each and every week. I was going to ask you about the pop-up nature, Dallas. That makes sense. I, I was thinking it's probably not a hipster bar in inner city Melbourne. Um, you know, <laughs> but, but so right. So they basically have a little inbuilt system where they just kind of click off and then float up to the surface, and that's very cool technology. Yeah, that's right. They they float up to the surface, and that's when they when they come up, they then um, transmit to the satellite, and that data is collected and, and captured the location. And, yeah, we, we know where we've tagged them and we then know, um, you know point A to point B where they've uh, popped up and, then, and where they've released. Right, so then you can go out because they're worth a couple of grand, you go out and scoop them up over the side of the boat or something and use them again <laughs> or not. Yeah, we wish, we'll, you know, we might try and get Corey out there to capture them, but um, no, cool. you know, they'll... Yeah, they'll, they'll provide us with that you know, really data. important information, won't they? Yeah, yeah. Now, I've got the obvious question. What data are they collecting while they're attached to the crab? It's mainly movement. And, um, well, we can tell, you know, from when they're first tagged to where they pop up, but also things like water current and, and, and how strong that current is. So that might give us some information on, you know, have they moved out into the rip or have they gone out offshore, um, you know, into more high-energy environments as well? That tells us a little bit about their habitat preferences, um, which is a, yeah, an added uh, bonus with these tags. Um, you mentioned, Dallas, that you had a mix of male and female crabs. Uh, how do you work that out? I know, I know the three of us are probably sitting here um, knowing the answer to that, but how do you actually sex a crab? Is it hard to do, especially underwater? <laughs> 
it, it can be, um, but we, you know, we used um, really experienced uh, and trained divers, and um, basically you flip the, the crab over the, um, and look at, at underneath, look at the belly of the crab, and you can tell um, there's, a, there's a shape of, um, and I won't use the technical term here, but it's, it's, it's either very um, sort of rounded or it's quite triangulated. And um, you can tell the male or the female based on the shape of that, um, that bit of shell underneath the belly. It's so cool. Um, did you have any, uh, did you kind of want to get an even balance when you went out there? Was that sort of the idea? Yeah, that was the plan, you know, we, and we got very close to 50-50. So, um, you know, we just want to yeah, cover the uh, both the male and the female crabs and, and we were able to do that with a bit of work. And Yeah, the dive team was, was fantastic. They, um, you know, they had a few spots where we thought they would be and we went down and had a look off, uh, off Rye and also off Blair Gary. Um, and they weren't there anymore, so we had to go out into a bit deeper water. And uh, yeah, but yeah, without too much finding, too much work, um, they were able to locate a few, and um, and they got the job done. So, and of course, you know, socially distancing, and um, I think you saw some of the photos, Bron. And uh, Corey, Corey had his um, face mask on, and uh, yeah, he was he was tagging, and the sun was out. It actually got a bit bit hot and sweaty, believe it or not. Um, so um, yeah, he was um, earning his money that day for sure. So this was actually this was actually done on the boat. So the crabs were retrieved by the divers, put on the boat. The little harnesses were put on, and then the divers went down and put them back on the bottom. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Wow. wow. Now one of the things I've seen happen with some fish that have been tagged is that they get eaten by things. Um, now I guess that's a chance that that's going to happen here. So I'm guessing the data. Was there anything? Are you collecting temperature? Are you collecting salinity? Is that sort of data being collected as well? Or is it just yeah, the water it'll, movement? It'll give us temperature as well. But um, if, if for, for argument's sake, a, a big stingray comes along and uh, has a bit of a nibble, well, then that tag will also pop up and yeah. that'll tell us you know, information as well. So, um, yeah, we've used these sort of tags before on, uh, on other species, particularly sharks. Um, I, and, I, yeah. I, it's um, so remarkable. I, mean, I know we've talked about this over the, the, the last few months on air about, you know, just how... We know so much about when they come in and so little about where they go. I just think this is sensational kind of really basic info that you guys are out there collecting, Dallas, and really add to just how you manage that that fishery, but also just add to the basic understanding of science. Just a very cool, yep. massive local species that we just know nothing about. Yeah, for sure, Anthony. You know, we, we were um, talking as we were heading out, you know, on Thursday, and like, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I don't think we ever would have imagined that we'd be satellite tagging spider crabs in Bay. <laughs> you know, that's one of the great things about, you know, the area we get to work in that, um, you know, things, uh, yeah, we're you know, very adaptive and we're always looking for, for new things to learn. And, you know, the spider crab phenomenon in Portfolio Bay is an amazing thing. So uh, it's a really good thing that's happened. And, yeah, we were pretty excited about it. And uh, we've got this work underway now. So, um, yeah, we look forward to the results. And, uh, perhaps coming back on your show in a few weeks once, once we start to collect some of this data. So it's going to be a really interesting story to tell. Yeah, definitely. And I'm really interested to see, I know so many other people are going to be really interested to see the results uh, in terms of what comes back from this. I loved um, that kind of uh, idea, that, that thought of a stingray coming and maybe, you know, eating one of the crabs and, and having that data, you know, suddenly a spider crab's travelling at like a metre a second <laughs> yeah. compared to the other ones that have just gone and crawling around. But um, it, it's, it'd be really interesting to find out and, and it's been such a great mystery for so long 
about what happens to these animals. So to actually, you know, start to get an understanding is wonderful. Have you got any predictions? Have you or your team or any of the citizen science divers on board, have any of them got sort of any predictions about what you might find? Uh, we're keeping a, a very open mind at this stage, Bron. Um, I mean, we know that there's, um, you know, spider crabs out in Bass Strait and in the Gippsland Lakes and Corner Inlet and other places from time to time. And, you know, so we know that there are other populations out there, but what we're not really sure of is how interconnected they are. We might just uh, keep that one in our in our back pocket for now. I don't want to speculate because I'm sure I'll be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Awesome. Um, if people want to find out more information, what can they do, Dallas? Have you got some stuff that you're putting up on, on um, the Victorian Fisheries Authority's webpage? We have. Our, our, our minister, our, our new minister for fishing and boating, uh, Minister Horn, will be putting some information on this, um, you know, the last week tagging exercise on her Facebook page. So check that out. And also we've got a VFA website. Um, just jump on into our VFA uh, website there, vfa.vic.gov.au, and go into the search bar, type in spider crabs, and you'll find a, a special dedicated uh, page all about spider crabs. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dallas. Really looking forward to catching up with you in a few weeks' time and finding out how this went. And, look, particularly at this time when there's just so much heaviness and so much negative news to come out of a situation like what happened back in May and June and to really sort of have this positive, uplifting development in this story is fantastic. So thank you so much and um, congrats on the start of this and we're really looking forward to catching up with you in a few weeks' time. Yeah, thank you. And, and also, I really appreciate the chance to come on to your show and share this story with all your listeners. It's, uh, it is pretty fascinating and, yeah, we look forward to, to coming back on in the next few weeks. Awesome. Thanks, Dallas. Thank catch you, you Dallas. Dallas De Silva there. But that's just fantastic. You know what we should do, Bron? We should... Um, we, let's get people in our Facebook to just have a prediction. Where do you reckon they're going to come up? Where do you reckon they're going to be? Oh, there's 50 grand's worth just of tags floating around. In. No, no, not the, the tags. The, the, the crabs. The crabs. Where are they going? So, yeah, get on our Facebook and stick your... Oh, I reckon the crabs are going to blah, and then we'll find out in the next couple of weeks. Western Port. Everything ends up in Western Port <laughs> that's in Port Phillip Bay. <laughs> Love it. Hey, you're on Radio Marinara. We've got about 12 minutes to the doctors uh, and um, we're going to talk coastal adaptations. So um, we're going to talk about options for all that, that basically for us all as we face basically coastal, coastal erosion and sea level rise. Now, we saw an extraordinary example um, hit New South Wales in recent weeks after the big storms. And so we decided to bring in some experts to help. Uh, Alan Young is a national leader of urban and regional planning at EMM Consulting. He's also pretty much had a 30-year association with coastal management, including roles senior in the um, state government um, in coastal marine policy management. He's a Fulbright scholar and a a Churchill fellow. And that latter took him to the US, Caribbean and the UK to study solutions to coastal erosion adaptation. Sure. Yep, sure, that's all he did when he was there. Anyway, um, when it comes to our biggest coastal challenges, Alan's seen a lot and and thinks about a lot. So we brought him in to talk. Good morning, Alan. Welcome to Triple R. Good morning, all. I'm, I'm not in the Caribbean right now. I'm in Sydney. <laughs> hey, so you're not in as big a lockdown as we are, so we are incredibly jealous. But I tell you, before we get into options for coastal adaptation, can you give us Victorians a little bit of basics about what actually happened in those beaches up near Terrigal in the recent weeks? Yeah, look, it's probably a familiar story to people in Victoria as it is globally, really, whereas... Um 
we've got a number of what we might call hot spots up and down the New South Wales coast. Uh, Wombrel happens to be one of those. Where we've got um, you know chronic erosion for various reasons and uh, and properties and other infrastructure built quite close to that, typically on a forge dune somewhere. And um, and again, it's a pretty familiar pattern. It's happened before. It's a bit of a legacy issue. We've had we've lost houses before at Wombrel and. The, uh, the storms of note back in 74 and 78 have come close at other times as well, and yet we still find ourselves in a situation. And we had a pretty severe East Coast low a few weeks ago, in fact, two of them in a row. Um, and that's really eaten into the four dunes and exposed all the uh, the earlier sort of rubble attempts at, at protection. And, and, and people have been evacuated from their homes, uh, currently still are, I believe, and... Uh, so, and we're figuring out what to do. We haven't got the solution uh, nailed down just yet, but it's in process. Hey, so with that, the so there's a there's a I think a, someone told me there's a big difference. One of the big differences between what can happen in Victoria, for example, what can happen in New South Wales is in New South Wales there's quite a lot more ownership right down to the high tide mark. Is that right? You can have private ownership of the right down to the the high tide. Uh, yeah, that's right. So we, we, I think Victoria's got um, sort of a setback area that's more or less crown-owned uh, along your coastline. I don't know, we don't tend to have that uh, in New South Wales. We do have, in various places, private property abutting crown land, and that's kind of part of where the problem arises because um, when you've got uh, a beach and, uh, and private property right behind it, it's not always clear where... The, the property boundary sits yeah. and when and when when people think oh I'm just going to put some protection works in nobody owns that land in front of me then but they also do it's it's crown land it's owned by the state um, you get into all sorts of difficult conversations about you know, um, you know occupation of someone else's land and putting in big rock revetments or whatever it might be so yeah we, we don't have Victoria's um, sort of benefit of those setbacks in many places than we do have yeah, uh, and property, it's yeah. interesting because they're a double-edged sword. So 96%, I think, of Victoria's coast is actually publicly owned, um, that little bit, you know, that goes back. And then it, you know, it might only be a metre wide or two or something, but then there's a road or then there's private property, as you say. But it's a double-edged sword in the sense that, um, you know, the thing that would go first in Victoria will be all the public land, <laughs> you know, because when, when, the, when the coastal erosion, you know, happens and when it is happening. Um, whereas in New South Wales, there's perhaps a little bit more impetus because houses fall in the ocean, people start to see the problem faster. I don't know which is better or worse, but... Um, Hey, so what are some of the options? You know, your kind of standard broad range of options that mm. you can do. Cade earlier in the show was saying he, he's heard of managed retreat. Uh, what are the other options that you can get? Well, I, there's there's two two buckets you can put these the response in. You can either either stay where you are and um, and undertake some sort of action to either accommodate or or protect the, the things that are sitting on the landward side. Or you can move away, and those things are typically called protect or retreat, manage retreat, plan retreat, that sort of thing. Uh, so that's the two main areas, and it comes as no surprise to anyone, I think, that generally uh, the, there's, a, there's a preference for uh, protection, particularly if you're one of the people who are being impacted by the erosion. And we've tended to have this situation where uh, that that we've kind of ignored really 
how does plan to treat this general concept work? And so we've got a pretty sophisticated set of options on the protection side. You can have your beach nourishment, you can have uh, you know, seawalls, revetments, groins, offshore reefs, any number of fancy you know, you know, solutions. But on the planned retreat side, that's it's either that or nothing, and it's really ill-defined. Mm. We really haven't given it the attention that we need. But those are the two main two main options. And as I say, it's uh, typically we don't speak about uh, planned retreat, and that's been become part of the problem. Um, yeah, basically that's your choice. But uh, Alan, and one of the things I guess I'm interested in is the cost of these sort of options. So obviously, you know, in Australia, we real estate has I think searched as much, if not more, than porn. Um, <laughs> so the value of properties is obviously a big concern. But does it actually cost more to like buy these properties and start to think about retreating, or the actual protection option? Has there been much work done around the cost? Uh, yeah, there's. there's there's usually a cost-benefit done for every situation, like your Wamberals up and down the coast, um, and people will put on one side of the ledger, here's the uh, the cost of our preferred seawall and nourishment and so forth, and on the other side of the ledger they'll look at, here's our cost of retreat. Now, the assumption uh, on the protection side is, I think, that is the cost of the seawall. There's often not so much intention to actually putting back the sand that the seawall will... Yeah. cause to be lost and so forth so that's one thing that, that tips in favor of um of protection works but on the retreat side the the issue has been that the there's a there's a kind of a there's no real deal in inverted commas struck between government and private landowners on that front yet just yet and we what we're finding is that there's a simply an assumption that houses will be bought out at a pre-hazard price and that's obviously um you know, what if, if it comes to that sort of thing, what the owners would want. But again, that's that's one solution, but I I think we haven't looked at it seriously enough because obviously buying out at a pre-hazard price um, brings moral hazard and all sorts of things where you're simply incentivising people to continue in, to, to intensify yeah. development where they probably shouldn't be doing that. The opposite is actually what you want. You want to actually uh, scale back your intensification in those known at-risk areas. And at the same time, you don't want to punish them for just happening to have bought there, you know, 60, 70 years ago when the rules weren't that yeah. what they are. So you've, we've been right, talking yeah. about maybe this lease thing. We've got about a minute and a half, kind of like yeah. a, a long-term lease arrangement. How does that work? Um, I, I think we need another category other than planned retreat called assisted transition. And one thing might be that, of course, no one's going to really walk away until the last minute yeah. rather than rather than have government uh, be assumed to purchase all properties at pre-hazard price which is completely unaffordable put in another option there to say we will lease the property back from you after you abandon if you are if you re return it to a, a natural state and so forth but we just haven't looked at that seriously the whole side of the equation for uh, for relocation there's a number of things we could do there but it's just a question of getting people to actually talk about it, which is, you know, that's a big battle in itself. Oh, I think it's a big battle at, at any, any time and particularly in COVID time because everyone's talking about existential threats that are happening, you know, to themselves about, you know, pandemics and not when, you know, this is long-term thinking, isn't it? The the disconnection between the the timeline of the hazard, except for those people north of Terrigal, yeah. um, and the actual intervention are completely separate. It's, That's right. hey, I, I think we need to let the market 
do a little bit of bit of work for us, and you know, rather than have government try and solve yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. If we let the market forces influence it and get more risk-reflective pricing, that would help. And on that note, we are going to... I can hear the music there in the background. Alan, thank you very much for sharing your expertise this morning with us on Radio Marinara. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Cheers. Alan Young there, who is the uh, uh, National Leader of Urban and Regional Planning for EMM Consulting in New South Wales, and he's published a couple of really interesting papers about these types of assisted transitions, I think he talked about. I did like that phrase. Yeah, where you get, like, you put a signal in the market to help people move. I think it's it's really essential stuff because government's not going to be able to bail everyone out. No, and it's going to take creative thinking to get through these. And you can't leave people in the lurch as no. well. Anyway, hey, we want to thank uh, Dallas De Silva. Fantastic. Uh, Brett Ditchworth. He's still, uh, Brett Ditchfield, sorry. He's still, can you hear him? He's in the cabin. <laughs> He's banging. <There> you go. <laughs> go on, shut up. Hey, hey get down. Um, and of course, Ellen Young. Um, thanks, Braun. Thanks, Anne. Thanks, Kate. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.